Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. It is great to have you all here. I see maybe one or two visitors today. If, uh, if you are visiting here for the first time, welcome. It's great to have you here. So as many of you know, I imagine mo- at least the vast majority, we have, uh, last week we started our series on biblical ethics, and we started and introduced the topic of homosexuality. And specifically last week, we talked about what the Bible says about homosexuality, or you can think of it, the, the what of homosexuality. Does the Bible say that homosexuality is sinful? Or are there exceptions? Where do, do things change with Jesus in the New Testament? And what we found was that across the entire scripture, both Old and New Testament, homosexuality is universally condemned as a sin. And what that means, of course, is as any sin, if an individual does not repent of that sin and they do not turn away from that sin, then as one of the passages we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and we'll talk about that passage a little bit more tonight, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, meaning they will fall under the wrath, the eternal wrath of God in hell. And homosexuality really is uh, a, a sin among many sins. Any sin has the potential that we don't, any sin I should say that we don't repent of or that we don't turn away from uh, does make us guilty before God and brings us under the wrath of God and potentially the eternal wrath of God if there is never repentance. However, Homosexuality is not just any sin. In some of the passages we looked at, it's even called, it's one of the few sins that's called an abomination. In the Old Testament, it's even one of a few sins among a a relatively small group that actually required the death penalty if an Israelite was caught committing that sin. And and why is that? And this is what we're going to really focus on tonight is it's one thing to say that homosexuality is a sin and that those who don't repent or turn away from that lifestyle are under the wrath of God, but it's another thing to actually understand why homosexuality is a sin. Often, as Christians, and especially those, our type of Christians that would speak out and, and condemn homosexuality, we're viewed by the world as unloving. We're viewed as unloving. We may face objections like, well, how does homosexuality harm you? What does it have to do to you? Why do you care about it? Why do you have to to speak against it? Or you might see an an objection like, well, this is the way God made me, or this is the way God made them. So how can you condemn who I am or who they are? You know, how can you attack their their person like that? Well, well, tonight in addition to why explaining, or in addition to explaining why homosexuality is sinful, we are gonna also look at some of those objections and do our best to answer those objections from scripture and also from experience and from what the world and observations of the world can teach us. So as I mentioned, you can consider this as like a part two to our topic on, on homosexuality. And first, we are going to look at this issue of why 
homosexuality is sinful. Now, in order to do this, the, really, we, we have to establish a foundation. In order to understand the sinfulness of homosexuality, we have to, to lay out a foundation of, of, you could say, sexual ethics, or all of God's standards when it comes to sexuality and sexual expression. And when we're laying this foundation, what we, what we have to establish is, th- is this, that all sexual ethics within scripture, all of God's standards when it comes to sexual relationships, sexual expression, finds in it as its basis the creation of man and woman all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. Not only the creation of man and woman, but also the first marriage between man and, man and woman, or Adam and Eve. And an, an example of this where we see this is in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. In this situation, the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders at the time, they're coming up to Jesus to try to test him. And they're asking him if it's lawful for, for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. And what Jesus answers him and says here in verse four, he, it says, he answered him and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And Jesus in this passage goes on to use this passage, and he's quoting from Genesis 1 and 2 here. He goes on to use this as the basis for his teaching on adultery and divorce. Matthew 19, Jesus talking about marriage, talking about adultery, talking about divorce. Genesis 1 and 2 are the basis of this. And so what we see is that, is that God created here in Genesis 1 and 2 and what Jesus is referencing, God created human sexuality, institution of marriage, as a, as a covenantal relationship. And by covenantal relationship, it means a, it's, it's a, you could think of it like a blood pact. It's like you are committing your life to a promise, to a commitment, to either a promise or an individual and this is what marriage is. The Bible reveals that marriage is a covenant. And as a covenant, God is the enforcer and the witness of the marital covenant. And therefore, as the creator and the enforcer of marriage, remember Jesus says that what God has brought together, let man not separate. God is invested in the protection and the purity of marriage. The big takeaway that I want you to see from Matthew 19 is that all of human sexuality in sexual relationships, at its basis is marriage, which God established and which God wants to protect. And to really understand this in the importance of marriage and really how this ties into our discussion on homosexuality, we need to see the importance of marriage. And really the purpose, the purpose is that marriage serves in God's creation. So, in looking at this, we're going to look at, at a few purposes, I think mainly three that I have here in my notes, of, of why heterosexual marriage, that is marriage between one man, 
one woman in a covenant together, committed for life, why that relationship in that institution is so important. And where we really, the, the first purpose or importance of heterosexual marriage is in the imaging of God. And what do I mean by that? Well, let us look in Genesis chapter one. Remember, we're gonna be in the beginning of Genesis quite a bit because this is where the foundation is. Here in Genesis one, verses 26 to 27, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here, part of the reasons that God created mankind is to be, and I'm stopping here at verse 26, is to be his image bearers. And what that means, being an image bearer of God means that you're a representative of God. That's what it means in this passage. In fact, the grammar and the way it's working, it's saying, let us make man in our, in our own image according to our likeness so that they will rule over all of the fish of the sea, the animals on the ground in creation. In other words, by being in the, made in the image of God, it means that God made mankind to be his direct representative and to rule over creation in his place. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. And here's what verse 27 says. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is, of course, a reference to Adam and Eve, the first male and female that God created. And so what we see is that from both verses 26 to 27, that God creates mankind as his image bears by creating both man and woman as two distinct image bearers, but then who come together as one in marriage. And we're gonna see this in, in a few minutes. But, but the big thing here is what this implies, what this verse implies is not only that mankind was created to be image bearers of God and everything that that means, but that male and female is part of that equation. That in order for the fullness of God's image to be, you could say, manifested in his creation, in his world, it requires both male and female. And as we'll see, not just male and female, but male and female within the institution of marriage. And how is this so? How is the creation of male and female two distinct separate persons, distinct image bearers of God who come together as one, how does that display God's image to creation? Well, what we see, and this is the first thing we'll, we'll, we'll say about this, is this. You'll notice in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, even in the ver first part of what God says, he says, let us. And then he says, let them rule. So you have us and you have them. And what this points to is a plurality. That God is not just one person. And of course, as we taught multiple months back when we, when we discussed the Trinity, God isn't just one person. God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct persons 
who all share the same nature, they all share the same, you could say, DNA. They're all equally God in their nature and their being. They're, they're, they all share the same divinity. There's, there's multiple ways. You, you could say essence as well. So nature, essence, DNA, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all equally God, but they're also three distinct and separate persons. And so we get our first hint that in order for this, our triune creator, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to demonstrate himself in creation, to make image bearers, it's going to require a plurality of persons, that just one man by himself is not going to quite cut it. And, and so when God creates man and woman, and we're going to read, if you turn over to, to Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, we're going to see, and I'll, we'll, as we read through this, I'll kind of explain how the creation of man and woman and them coming together as, as, as one in marriage demonstrates the Trinity and the nature of the Trinity. So here in Genesis 2, verses 22 to 24, it reads, the Lord God fashioned into woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what we see here in this passage is, is critical. You have woman who is, is being made from the rib of man or from the side of man. So in the beginning, you have, you have Adam. He's one man. God puts him to sleep. God takes his rib from his side, creates woman. You now have man, woman, two distinct individuals. And, and, and the implication of this is that woman just like Jesus and the Holy Spirit, woman does not have her existence or, or her point of origin outside of man. Just like Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, they were not created, they, they weren't created, and they don't have a point of origin that is distinct from the Father. They all share the same nature. They all, in a sense, you could think of it, they, they come from the same source. Not that they have a source, they're eternal, God, our triune God is eternal, but no one person of the Trinity ever existed apart from the Trinity. They've always, from eternity, existed together, and in a similar way, not that it's a, a perfect representation, but woman has her origin from man. So she comes from man, and then in marriage, and so now, in verse 23, the man says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In other words, this woman who was made from my rib, she shares my nature. She shares my flesh. She shares my, my blood. She is just as 100% human as I am. But of course, she's also a distinct separate person. So just like all three persons of the Trinity are equally God, Adam and Eve are equally 100% human. So you have Adam and Eve, but now in marriage... It says in verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife in marriage, and now they're one again, one flesh. And the key thing with this is this word one here in this passage, one in, in the Hebrew, it's the word achad. 
It's the same word used to describe God as one. So in Deuteronomy 6, when it says, you know, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one, it's that exact same word that describes a husband and wife together in marriage. So just to summarize at this point, to kind of sum it together, with marriage between man and woman, you have two people, two persons that are distinct persons. They have their own mind. They have their own thoughts. They're, they're, they are distinct persons, yet they're equally human being. They're 100% human being. But in marriage, they come together and they're, they're as one in terms of their unity and in their bond with one another. Just like our Trinitarian God, three persons all equally God, but distinct persons. They have, they have their own minds. They have their distinct roles and functions with, within the Trinity, just like husband and wife have distinct roles and functions within the marriage and the family. Same thing with the persons of the Trinity. And so you see here that husband and wife partially serves to represent the triune nature of God. If I haven't convinced you yet, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, you have a similar, well, you, you have basically the, the comparison between marriage and the Trinity actually spelled out here in the New Testament. So if you look in 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3, Paul, and, and here he's trying to explain the differences in authority and function. He's saying, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of woman and God, that is God the Father, is the head of Christ. So in the same way that God the Father is the authoritative head of Christ, the husband is the authoritative head of the woman. So the point here that I want you to see is that here Paul is building off of this comparison, marriage and the Trinity. It's showing that connection. Now there's one more aspect to marriage between husband and wife, one husband, one wife, that helps, and you could say enables man and woman to serve as God's image bearers completely. And that is this, and that is through procreation or through the, the, the bearing of children. If we're going back to Genesis 1, we're gonna reread this passage, but then continue on to verse 28, and you'll see how this ties in. So here, starting again in verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea. Skipping down to verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And then here in verse 28, we have a, a, key, a key addition to this. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, and this is key, in order for man and woman to serve their purpose as rulers and representatives of, God's, of, of God in creation, they had to be fruitful and multiply. They had to have children and humanity had to spread throughout the world. In order for them to be these rulers and to serve this function, they had to multiply and spread. They had to reproduce. 
And, and so what this establishes here and what's, what's key to understand is that marriage, heterosexual marriage between one, one man, one woman, is the, the institution that God has designed for the birth and raising of the next generations of humanity. This is the way in which human beings come to the world and come up in the world. And nature tells us, you could say, even if we didn't have scripture, we could understand this through nature to a degree. And the reason I say that is because all children, you could say it this way, there is no human being alive, not a single human being alive, not a single human being that's ever been alive who does not have one father and one mother. Without a mother and father, no human being that is alive would be alive. And, and we un- so we understand, even just looking at, at that reality, that this is part of God's design and there's no way to, to escape this design. Children are, and, and, and here's what we could say about this as well, that because of this design and the fact that children come into existence through one father, one mother, and in a sense, it almost kind of represents the oneness of marriage even further because a child, even though they're the, they themselves are a distinct person, they're a third person in a way that's distinct from the mother and father, yet they're 100% human. They share the same human nature. And in the child, you actually do have the oneness come together. DNA from the mom, DNA from the dad. A single child has equally apart from mom and dad. And so by nature, children are bonded to their, to their biological mother and father. And, and this bond is so strong and so important that when you look at studies relating to you know, children and their upbringing, study after study demonstrates that children who are raised both by their biological mother and father together, and that is the original design, that those children generally, by and large, benefit in almost every way. That it is undeniable that the best upbringing and environment for a child is to be raised by their biological mother and father. Now, we live in a sinful and fallen world. There's death, there's divorce. That's not always a reality. And so I'm not trying to say that God cannot use any of those of those circumstances for his own benefit or that if a child is not raised by their biological mother and father, that means that they're doomed. I'm not saying that at all, but this is the design. And in a perfect world where there was no sin and death and corruption, this is how God intended it to be. So, and, and, we're, and we'll see even maybe we'll, we'll reference another, another study later on why this is so important. But let me move on to the third major benefit of marriage before we get really kind of now unpack homosexuality. And here's this. The third major benefit of marriage is the wife's complement and help to her husband. And what I mean by that is that you, another way to say it is the wife's support and you could say, you know, just, yeah, help of, of her husband. Look with me, for example, in Genesis 2, our next passage, 
in verses 18 to 20. We'll just see it spelled out here. So here in verse 18, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the fields and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that's what its name. The man gave, name, gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. What this means is that Adam by himself was incomplete. He was unable to fulfill his role as God's image bearer in creation. And so what does God do? Well, this passage immediately precedes the creation of woman. In order to fill this gap and to complete man, and God specifically and specially creates woman to fill that role in the man's, the man's life. And so it is the woman who is man's unique helper and companion in creation. And by implication, this means that there's something about the woman, there's something about the wife, something about how she is made that enables her to serve in this function. Of course, at the most basic level, we just talked about procreation. Without the wife, you can't have procreation. So on that level, we understand how, at the most basic level, how a wife helps her husband be an image bearer of God. Well, at the most fundamental level, she helps the husband have a family and helps the husband raise that family together with him. Also, and this is maybe more practical, studies show, and I, I looked at quite a few, that when men do marry, and this is interesting, not that this is universal, you know, that, that, that every marriage accomplishes this, but by and large, statistically, men who marry heterosexual men who get married and, and stay in committed relationships, they benefit in practically every area of their life more so than other categories of people, more so than single men, even more so than married women. It seems like men in particular are benefited by having a wife. They're, in a way, they're domesticated. They're, they, they're, they're grounded through the wife. I see some, I, I see some you know, chuckles back there. But it's true. There's a sense where when a man is young and single, it's like the whole world is his oyster and he's just going to kind of, you know, live by the, you know, he's, he's going to shoot by the hip is what, is what you'd say in the military, right? You're just going to kind of just, just, you know, tackle life as the day comes. You don't put much thought into the future. When a man gets married, that starts to change. And what the studies show is that their, their finances improve. They start to make more money. They start to work more at their job, they start to work more efficiently at their job, they become more happy generally, their health improves, um, they become more responsible, they, they don't quit their jobs as quickly, they don't do foolish things as often. All these things are shown statistically to be a reality for men that get married. And what the implication is, is that a wife, and a wife in particular, seems to benefit a man and seems to be, in many cases, necessary for that man's growth and improvement as a man. Again, I'm not speaking to universals. There are, there are men who cannot get married. There are women who cannot get married or who don't get married and are still able to live amazing lives 
in the service of God and become incredible people. So don't, again, don't take me to an extreme, but in general, these are principles that we are going through. Now, when it comes to homosexuality, and here we're gonna start to kind of turn back towards homosexuality, the reality is, is homosexual marriage, if we're thinking homosexual marriage, it hasn't been legal long enough for there to be these kind of studies. So there's very limited studies and data that try to measure, well, what are the benefits, if any, with homosexual marriage. However, what we do find, and, and again, I mean, you have to take this with, you know, for what it's worth, but there have been studies done on homosexual and, and men in particular that, that um, I found studies on, uh, many of which are older back in the 1980s, sometimes even 1970s, and, and so there might be some changes, but typically, based on some of these older studies, uh, among homosexual men, when you, you compare them to their heterosexual counterparts, specifically heterosexual married counterparts, uh, they typically have lower life expectancy, sometimes up to 30 years. Um, they have, uh, uh, to a much higher degree, chronic health issues. And some of that, quite frankly, and I won't get graphic here, um, but it, it does have to do as being a consequence of being the receptive partner in a male homosexual relationship, it does lead to a lot of chronic health issues, issues with liver and so forth. Um, there's higher uses of alcohol and drugs within the homosexual community. Um, there's also less relational relationship satisfaction. There's less uh, enjoyment within relationships. And this is indicated, and we'll maybe explore this a little bit more, but uh, there's an extremely low rate of sexual monogamy or, or committedness within homosexual relationships, especially among men. And maybe we'll, we'll go over some of those statistics in a bit. But okay, so we've, we've laid this foundation. We've, we've explained the importance of marriage and its purposes. Why then is homosexuality so sinful? What could we say? Here's, there's, there's really two, two things that we could say about this. The first is this, that Homosexuality, homosexual marriage, homosexual relationships, it indirectly undermines the institution of marriage. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, well, think of it this way. What makes something special and valuable is that it is unique, that it's held in, in high esteem, that, that it's considered special by the larger uh, culture or environment that you're in. Great example, we just had the college national championship between Alabama and Georgia. Okay, I know there's a lot of broken hearts over here, a few uh, happy hearts over there, but the championship did happen. Okay, why is the national college championship important? Why is that special when a team and their coaches wins a championship? Well, for one, it's because it's, it's a competition with a lot of other great teams and only one team gets the championship and they've had to beat a lot of teams and work through a lot of blood, sweat and tears in order to get there. Um, every, thousands of people watch and they care about who's, who's becoming the champion. Um, you go all throughout the reasons why being a national college football champion is important. Well, imagine if at the end of the Alabama and Georgia game, they said, congratulations, you guys are both champions. 
Here's your, here's your trophy. And then imagine, then imagine that they said, okay, now let's get all the coaches from every other college football team up out here, and we're going to say that they're champions too, and we're going to give them all trophies. And then imagine they, they didn't let anybody watch the games. You know, all of a sudden you would start, it, it, as that championship lost its, you know, its uniqueness and, and quite frankly it being special, over time it would just become worthless. And, and, and you can think of it this way. If everybody's a champion, nobody is a champion, right? That's a fair thing to say. And so if you think of it in the terms of marriage, if everything is a marriage, then nothing is a marriage. Or, or think of it this way, and maybe we'll just kind of break it down like this. Marriage between one man and one woman is special because of this. It's a lifelong covenantal relationship established by God, witnessed by God. So one, God is the one that's, that's making it special. There is that element. But also, in addition to being a lifelong covenantal relationship, meaning that you typically only marry one time in your life, that's pretty special, Okay, so the commitment itself, the covenant itself is special, makes it special. God's establishment in his protection of marriage makes it special. And as we've talked about, it's also a relationship that holds the potential of creating and raising the next generation of human beings according to God's design. Only heterosexual marriage between one man, one woman can actually produce that. Doesn't mean that every heterosexual marriage will be able to have children, but by and large, that is the design. You turn to homosexuality, and this is what's key. By nature, homosexuality redefines marriage. It redefines it because you no longer have the same, we see this observationally, you no longer have the same level of commitment. God did not establish it and, and make it special. And it cannot have children either two women together or two men cannot have children and cannot fulfill that, that element of being image bearers of God. Therefore, you could say this way that homosexuality redefines marriage as nothing more. And this is, if, and, and I, would, I would maybe encourage you even to test this if, if you have friends or family that are homosexuals is to ask how they would define marriage. Because here's what I would put forward is that there's, if homosexuality is, were, you know, justified and true, then you could define marriage as nothing more than just a committed sexual relationship with some added benefits, added government benefits and tax breaks, things like that. But it, but it would be nothing more than just two adults coming together in a sexual relationship, and that's it. All the other stuff, all the covenant the, the, the God's blessing and, and establishment, the children, the family, as God designed it, all of that would be, is not part of the, 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 the equation. Also, and, and let me just maybe even prove it this way. I'm, so here I'm arguing that homosexuality indirectly undermines marriage as God designed it and God intended it. What we see in our culture today, 30 years 
later in the homosexual movement and gay rights movement, what we see in our culture is the decline of marriage. You look at studies, you look at the data that's coming out, people are getting married less often. They're getting married at older, older ages. And I think in this country now, like the average age that many women and men get married is now over 30. So they're getting married later and they're staying married less. Divorce is on the rise, cases of adultery, all sorts, the, 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 the hookup culture, everything is on the rise. And don't get me wrong, homosexuality is not the only cause of this. You could, you could say that it's the entire sexual liberation, sexual you know, liberation movement, sexual revolution, that all of that together, pornography, hookup culture, homosexuality, transgenderism, all those things are contributing to this undermining of marriage. But homosexuality is a big part of that movement. It's a big part of that equation. Another, and this is the second thing, is that homosexuality itself is a direct attack on the image of God. We've already talked about what it, how marriage plays into the image of God. So let me just summarize it this way. If a covenantal relationship, a covenantal marriage, that, that lifelong commitment between one husband and one wife along with any children that come from that, if that serves, if that family unit serves as God's representation of himself on earth, if that is how we serve as image bearers, then any distortion of that relationship is an attack on God's image. And that is why, and here's what I'd argue, is this attack on the image of God is why homosexuality is a death penalty offense in the Old Testament. Because anything that insulted God in a high-handed way or that attacked his image, whether it was worshiping another God, making a false idol, killing another human being, another image bearer of God, anything that was an attack on the image and person of God was punished at the highest level. And, and let me just go through a few of these sexual sins just to illustrate this. So how does adultery, for example, violate the image of God? Well, in adultery, you have this violation of the covenantal commitment between husband and wife. It would be as if there was a violation of the commitment between the persons of the Trinity. It would be as if the son, Jesus Christ, went and worshiped Satan or another God. That's what adultery is similar to in God's representation, the way that it's, it's displayed. Bestiality, or, or we talked about this last week about animals, that would be a violation of the equal nature between the persons of the Trinity. And homosexuality in the opposite sense, it's a violation of the distinctions between the persons of, of the Trinity. Rather than man and woman and the distinctions that come with that, by having man and man or woman and woman, it, it, it erases those distinctions. And there's, there's more that we could talk to, but the two things that I want you to take away is why is homosexuality sinful? It undermines marriage and all that marriage serves, and it directly attacks the image of God, that connection that marriage has to the Trinity of God. I'm gonna read through a few common objections 
Let me maybe actually, just for the sake of time, because we're coming to the end of our time, there's one objection that I do want to, to talk about and end with, and that is this. Many, and maybe this is perhaps the biggest objection that we as Christians will face when we, are, when we are talking to those that are in the homosexual movement or those that are struggling with homosexual tendencies is this, that they will say people are born gay and they can't change who they are. They're born gay, they can't change who they are. Therefore, how could a loving God condemn them? How could we as Christians tell them that they're in sin, that, they're, that, if, that they need to repent from that if that's how they're born and if they can't change. Well, here's how we could answer this one. First of all, at its basis, the idea that people are born gay. There have been twin studies that have been done and genetic studies that have been done that prove, in other words, twin studies, meaning they've looked at twins, who identical twins who share 100% of their DNA together, and there are many, in fact, the majority of twin pairs where you may have one person one twin who's a homosexual and the other is not. And what those twin studies show is that homosexuality cannot be and is not determined by genetics. Also, gay testimony, people that, that are in the, the homosexual um, lifestyle and those who have come out of the homosexual lifestyle increasingly reveal that underlying most homosexual, homosexual attraction and tendencies is actually sexual abuse in childhood that then distorts their mind, distorts their sexual orientation, and then they get into high school and they start meeting friends and they start getting kind of caught into the homosexual movement. And over time, they get deeper and deeper into the movement. If you were here last Sunday, we talked about a gentleman named Beckett Cook who we read an article from, a, a formerly gay man that came out of the homosexual lifestyle, he said that sexual abuse around the age of 12 was a huge contributor. I had a good friend in North Carolina that I, I worked with for a brief time that was a homosexual male. He admitted to me that he was raped at the age of six. I, I saw a comment on during my research from, from a gay guy looking to get out of the gay movement. And he said that not only was he sexually abused, that almost every gay friend that he has had, and he's in the movement, that has opened up to him, he doesn't know a single gay person that does not have some kind of history of sexual abuse in their childhood. And so this is a big thing. And the point with this is that it is a lie and a myth to say that people are born gay. Oftentimes, maybe there's genetic predispositions or there's, there's, there's tendencies, but ultimately, it's environment. It's potentially stuff that's going on in their, in their childhood. It's peer pressure from people that they're friends with and, and ultimately their own sin and their own desires that lead them down that path. And here is the, the final thing I wanna, I wanna end with, and I know we're going a little bit over time, but this is a message of hope and encouragement, and, and even scripture directly addresses this issue. And that is this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. We read this passage last week, and I'll read the whole passage, but the, the last verse 11 is what's key. So here Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Remember, we talked about that effeminate and homosexuals, difference between a receptive and active partner in a homosexual relationship, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then here's what's key. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. In other words, what Paul is saying is there were believers in the Corinthian church, people that came to faith in Jesus Christ who were a part of that lifestyle, who did struggle with those sins and were living in those sins. But they were. And when they came to faith in God, God transformed who they were. God changed their heart. And this is a big part of salvation, that when we come to faith, when we place our faith in Christ and we trust in Christ as our Savior, Scripture says that the Holy Spirit of God comes and dwells within us. The Holy Spirit changes our heart. He takes our, our emotions, our desires, and he changes those towards God. And what this means is that for anybody that truly believes in God and truly believes in Jesus Christ, nothing is impossible for that ind individual. Nothing is impossible with God. God is able to change that person. And as an example, the, the gentleman Beckett Cook that we, that we looked at, that's what he says of himself, that when he became a Christian, his desires changed. He says that, yes, he still struggles with attraction here and there, but it's nowhere near the level that it was. He doesn't dwell on it, and he doesn't seek to identify with it. He tries to turn it away, just like we talked about the desire for adultery, that the Christian, the true Christian, will always seek to turn away from their sin and to grow closer and closer to God and for their, their desires to grow closer and closer to God's desires. And that is possible for anybody struggling with any sin, but even those that are struggling with homosexuality. And so if you have friends, if you have neighbors, if you have family that is struggling with, it, with them, I, I don't want you to go and take away from these two lessons and just you know, sit and, and tell them that they're just the worst person in the world and that you know, how, how could they be a homosexual don't, don't treat it like that. Understand that they're sinners just like we're sinners, that we all struggle with things. But, but the good news is that for all of us, including them, faith in Christ can provide an escape, not only an escape from the wrath of God, but an escape from our sin. And so that's the hope that I want to leave you all with, and, and I hope that you take away from I will close us in prayer and then we will be dismissed. Uh, Lord God, we are so thankful that you are our God, that you have sought and desired to make yourself known to us, Lord, uh, through your creation, including even through the institution of marriage and, and everything that that represents. Lord, I pray that just we would have the same desire to protect marriage um, that you do, Lord, that, that we would be willing to speak your truth boldly and without any kind of fear, Lord, that, that, we would, we would, that we would be able to witness to others about your truth. Lord, that if we have homosexual friends or, or any friend that's struggling with any kind of sin pattern in their life, and that includes us, that, Lord, you would just 
that you would, you would help them and help us escape from those sins, that you would change us from the inside and change our hearts. Lord, I pray for these students that you would just be with them and that you would bless them. And I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student.